Thanks to Cry Malt. This is Radio Brews News. My name is Matt Kirkegaard, founder of Australian Brews News. And as ever, I'm joined by my good friend, colleague, and all-round good beer guy, Pete Mitchum. Pete, welcome back. How's your week? Yeah, not too bad, Matt. G'day, Matt, and g'day, listeners. Matt, uh, have we got the black armband on this week? Uh, you're a proponent of all good dad humour and the founder of the Dad's Army uh show died or the, the the creator of dad's army died is was was that a favorite of yours when you were a young man no <laughs> okay <laughs> it's one of those dad dad joke things uh, we might just keep moving how's your week been pete much on any new beers tried brewery visits there have been a few breweries open down your way oh have they i know there's one out the country somewhere i think look the way the industry is going at the moment there's something opening new every every day it seems so um which if we follow the lead of the states is probably um going to end in tears um because i think i read somewhere this week that whilst you know beer is uh, craft beer sector is is growing by i think it's you know 15 percent or so um the number of craft breweries is growing by about 30 or 40 percent um so presumably that demand is not going to keep up with supply or supply is going to outstrip demand by a long way well, unless the market increase, yeah, unless the uh, number of consumers turning to craft beer, and that's something that we've talked about a lot, and I saw those same statistics. And whilst uh, craft beer is the noisy child of the beer industry at the moment, it's the one that's making all the noise, it's highly visible. Um, you know, as we talked about last week, fruit beers, for example, are growing at a, you know, again, off a very small base, but, um, you know, they're already a, a significant fraction of the size of craft and growing very, very quickly and they're probably targeting a much wider market. Um, what's your think? You know, I had a lot of people talking about this issue. It's obviously uh, you know, very big, but there are still a lot of breweries in planning and a couple of different models. Uh, you know, do you have any thoughts uh, about what the future is, you know, do you think that we can quickly reach saturation point? I uh, very much so. I think probably. I mean, I'm a big fan of the brew pub model, um, uh, and that's probably biased a little bit by my experience in um, in the hospitality field for much of my uh, career. So, uh, I think if you can have more than one string to your bow. Um, more than one revenue stream, then you can afford to have a dip in one and 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 have it pick up in the other. Um, it gives you a lot more flexibility, I think, too, because I think a lot of the labour requirements are similar to both. You need the same kinds of you know passion and work ethic, um, skill levels in both brewing, in hospitality, um, in sales, and in production. So I think there's you know, um, businesses could perhaps look at. You know, multi-skilling um, some of their staff to to be flexible to you know have your sales guy behind the bar um, or to be out doing beer festivals for you or um, or even you know your, your bottling guys um, could be you know working in the in the kitchen or you know there's all, all sorts of things like that so I, I think that's a better model because you're then distributing them in in lots of different markets. Yeah, and and there seems to be you know there's obviously going to be room for a couple of national. Um, players uh you know uh, the, the the big national footprint players yeah I, I i just i just get a little bit worried Matt, about the um the, the the seemingly um unfettered um optimism with which some are saying well we're gonna you know start out small but then the next thing you know they're they're trying to send it two states across um and trying to sort of because then i think you not only are you getting into other people's local markets um, which I don't think necessarily um, does the the community as a whole any favours, um, but I think too, you know, if we you got to walk before you can run. True, true, and and you know, again, I think the one my view is that the one thing that people are forgetting um, when they have that really bullish approach and you know, sort of look at how quickly it's growing is we are at that period of great excitement when for a lot of people craft beer is still very new they're willing to you know go to bottle shops several suburbs away um, to pick up a $30 bottle of beer or a $30 $28 six pack of beer um, to try something that's new and just landed but that dissipates quite quickly as in with anything that has that element of uh, faddishness to it uh, that, that can go quite quickly and uh, you, you know, once that happens, people start looking at convenience. They start staying a little bit more local. They start looking at price. And when you've got 
small breweries that are sending beer uh, around the country, there's a you know, added cost to that, um, and the, the local breweries will be able to, you know, service a market cheaper. They'll be able to uh, do it, and that, you know, longer term, you know, for the next 12, 18 months, no, we don't have that Nostradamus crystal ball um, to know exactly how long it's going to taste. But there are certain principles of business that are going to see, you know, more competitive pressures, um, and that's where bigger breweries are going to have an advantage when they are sending beer across the country. Yeah, exactly. And two points to that. One, I think, is that. You're, you, you, I don't know. You're rolling the dice when you take your beer from where it is enjoyed best, um, package it, and then send it away. And in a lot of cases, um, just from personal experience, uh, it, it, the, um, the quality doesn't translate. Uh, now, whether or that, whether or not that's a, a skill issue, whether it's a, um, you know, equipment issue or a combination of both. Um, uh, and then the second part of that is that when people who are perhaps thinking of getting into craft beer um, see their television tell them um, that a certain big brewer makes a beer, that um, it's okay, it's a it's an ale, so it's kind of like craft, but it's okay, we haven't put a whole, you know, it doesn't taste like much, so you can drink it quickly. Um, I, I just fear that that those forces um, legitimise not having to spend the $27 on the six-pack and going back to the, you know, I'll go the 16 Because you know what? As as much as it's um, degraded, de, uh, whatever, you know, by by its critics, um, you just you don't get a bad one. Yeah, and w- which brings us to one of the news things I was going to bring up. It's a nice little segue in. Um, we had news this week that Lion is planning to bring back your Monday Lager. Uh, I'm not sure if that resonates with you terribly, Prof, but I, I had I had your Monday lager at your Monday markets. I bought some, um, so I don't know whether back then it was a how independent the brand was or who, where it was being made, whether it was the Monday brewery or whatever. Um, so our very first trip to the Sunshine Coast. Um, let's see, eldest Pilsner's twenty one now. Was before she started school, so it'd be 16, 17 years maybe. Okay, that well, that's an interesting time to get it because it was a brand that. Um, launched back in 1988 so uh, a lot of listeners um, to this probably weren't anywhere near their uh, drinking license age back in those days uh, some, some of them some of them are probably still shitting their nappies Matt <laughs> and possibly even not been born given it's uh, mm. uh, what 28 years ago um, but that was yeah I was I I'd actually I think I was still a year shy of uh, oh no no I was uh, I, I was legally drinking uh, in 88 and it was the first wave of craft breweries so it was when we first started seeing Matilda Bay on this side of the country um, we had the uh, brew house down at Sanctuary Cove. Um, that was in the days of uh, Alan Bond and uh, um, Mike Gore, who developed Sanctuary Cove. Uh, yuppies, you know, who were the hipsters of the day. Um, and we had a, a, a sudden flowering of craft breweries. There was a brew pub in South Brisbane called Kelly's. There was the Brisbane Brew House. Um, and Umundi was one of the beers. Um, they washed out just as quickly. But Umundi just seemed to have that resonance uh, at the time. We also saw Powers Bitter come in around about the same time. Um, and it, it's, I, I think it's trickled along um, as a contract. It's, it's been a label that has survived to some uh, degree, but it was, a, it was a big play at the time. It started to get out there as a premium lager around the time that Chuck Hahn was bringing out his beers. And then it just disappeared. And I think because you had a small brewing label that was making a, a very nice beer, but they were making it the same beer that the Lions and the CUBs were making at the time. Couldn't compete on price. And uh, so it just, you know. No, yeah. Well, that, that was the time of you know, 18.5% interest rates. Exactly. Yeah. So, so there was a lot of that. But the interesting thing about which, this... Which for, those, which for those younger viewers who weren't drinking back then will probably fall over uh, at the concept of now when we're at what, you know, 1.5% and tip to go down again. Exactly. But yeah, believe it or not, folks, that 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 was real. Admittedly, you're also getting paid, you know, fourteen or fifteen percent on your uh, bank accounts then, rather than actually paying the bank to look after your money. But uh, yeah, it was still a, it was a it was a pretty frightening time back then. God, listen to us, Prof. I'll uh, yeah. we are. But uh, back, the, back in my day, <laughs> the, the interesting thing about this is we've seen, uh, you know, Line a couple of years ago created the uh, um, Kosciuszko. Brewery that they've never really put a huge 
you know, money lever behind, but it's it, it's it's out there and certainly uh, grown. Um, they've recently bought the Byron Bay uh, Brewery um, that they've just reopened. Now they've gone Umundi. The big brewers have really come to realise that small, local, um, interesting is something that people are looking for. Um, but they also realise that you know, there's 90% of the population that doesn't give a shit whether the small, local um, and interesting is genuine or whether it's just a... Front. They look no. They just look at the price. They look at the well. They they look at the label and uh, and and the price. And uh, so it's it's an interesting play by line. They seem to be doing this. You know, opening these little breweries um, or buying these little breweries or licensing these little breweries, brewing them in the area so they can't be accused of uh, you know charlatanism. Um, but then when it gets scale or it gets demand, uh, and New Monday's just, for those who don't know, it's a little town just in behind Noosa, which is probably the Byron Bay of southeast Queensland. Um, resonates with people. They go there for beach holidays. They come from all around Australia. They're going to be exposed to this brand, which is a local beer. And then when they go home, they're going to want to take a little piece of their uh, beach holiday with them. And... Uh, Start asking, gee, wish I could get that Yamundi lager. Um, and then it can come out of the big breweries, much the same way as the, the bigger breweries, much the same same way as Kosciuszko does. And uh, yeah, I, look, it, it's, a, it's a very, very clever strategy um, by a line, and it'll be interesting to see how it works. And it's going to put a lot of pressure on the small little brew pubs that are opening up because Lion's always going to be able to do it cheaper and uh, yeah, more efficiently. Yeah, yep. So, um, and again, you know, I say that without any, uh, you know, judgment on it because if, if that's what people value, they, they like to feel good about the beer they're drinking without actually, you know, thinking too deeply about who owns it or anything like that. And a lot of people do that, then, uh, you know, that's, that's the way the market goes and uh, is the market wrong? So, anything else this week, Prof? Let me see. Uh, Talking about big beer, um, CCA still a minnow in beer. A uh, Merrill Lynch analyst um, says that the uh, Coca-Cola Amatil, which has uh, Yenda, um, amongst other things, um, not really kicking goals despite their big ambitions. Do, do you see that much, Prof, uh, down your way? Yeah, Yenda is certainly very prominent. Um in it's sort of you know, little things like your IGA, um, in, in Uncle Dan's and First Choice and that sort of thing. Um, there's certainly a lot of competition, I think, around around that price point. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, look, you know, we've we've discussed them before. Good, solid, quality beers. Um, you know, brewed by blokes who do love brewing and, and do know a little bit about the caper. Um, and have a fair bit of, um, you know, a fair few runs on the board in that respect. Um, uh, I wonder whether or not this justifies, um, as you've often pointed out, that, that Yenda kind of plays up, that, that they are a, a small brewery, a small player in a, in a little country town in New South Wales. Maybe, maybe that's, maybe they actually are. Although that's, see, that's that's the thing. That's where, you know, I compare Lions strategy where they've been very smart. You know, they buy and buy. Umundi, um, Kosciuszko, places that you go to holiday. Who has ever been to Yenda and driven through and thought, gee, I'd like to take a little bit of uh, this back with me? Or, you know, do you want to remember my, uh, you know, blink and you miss it trip through Yenda? Um, well, so, you don't actually go through it. You'd, you'd have to go off the main road, you know, like on your way to Griffith. You get and lost. actually de- detour off to, to get to Yenda. Um, <laughs> but, but I wonder whether, given that its association with Casella and the Casella brand, whether or not, um, with the Casella beers going into, or the Yellowtail branded beers going into the US, it'll be interesting to see if, like, oh yeah, we've heard of that, we know that, you know, whether or not they perhaps scratch their head and think, well, maybe, maybe instead of Yender, we should have gone Yellowtail. Well, so Yellowtail does that, does that does that resonate better, or or in Australia does it? You know, because in America, that Yellowtail is. Australian wine, I think, like it's Australian for wine. Oh, it's a critter wine, yeah, exactly. But you know, Yenda—that's the thing. I don't think Yenda has any resonance, and the places that I see it are the sort of, you know, places that have got the the, the, the pokies. They've, you know, the, the sports bar. The the publican just wants to get a a good price. They want to deal with one, so they, they buy their coke, they buy their coffee. Uh, you know, grinders coffee. I think CCA's got. Yeah, they, they buy yeah, the Yenda. Yeah. 
So they just, you know, the, the rep comes in, they do the portfolio thing, they've got the cores yeah. now, they and they, they check boxes, one delivery, one invoice. Yeah. Don't give a shit about anything else because whoever's in there um, is just going to drink whatever's on tap. They might have a Forex Gold or a Carlton Draft. Yeah, like you say, you're not there for the beer. You're yeah. there for the, the pokies or whatever it is, and you go, oh, I might try that new one because it's, you know, got manager's special on it or, it's, you know, I can get a palmer and a pot and um, good opportunity to, you know, for Yenna to get their, their brand, you know, into, into people's hands. But it's got nothing to do with the, the, the beer or the brand. It's got everything to do with the, you know, product um, portfolio that they're in and the, and, and the, yeah, the price yeah. that they're offering it at. And that's something that doesn't translate into sexy in the bottle shops. So, um, you know, it, 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 it's it's occupying a niche for publicans. You know, it's almost the home brand that's not a home brand type beer without actually, you know, creating any... The, the, the brand doesn't resonate with consumers. So, yeah, it's, it's not the sort of thing you see walking off the shelves um, except for price. But uh, yeah, anyway, so it, it, it's very, very interesting times right across from the smallest to the largest, Prof. Um, and yeah, it, very much. Yeah. Um, mate, this week, we one thing, is, as you flagged last week, we really haven't uh, ever talked about yeast. Yeah, I was, I was very Nostradamus of me, actually, just to kind of accidentally bring that up. Um, or spontaneously bring that up um, because this week we've, um, as a result of Dermot Dowling, who's one of our uh, executive producers and one of our, uh, well, let's say a pat- patron rather than a pat- Patreon, um, who uh, put his hard earned up and earned the right to choose a guest and to throw five or have five questions thrown uh, at the guest. Um, and this week uh, we're proud to present, yeah, yeast for I, I think probably the first time where we've specifically uh, i guess spoken to a you know a yeast wrangler yeah so we, we've got um again dermot put it, uh, put him up as his uh guest that he'd like to ask uh you know five minutes with or ten minutes with and uh when we looked into it we thought gee yeah we actually haven't covered yeast and uh this, this sounds like it could be quite interesting so we've given the whole show over uh to dr jim withy from giggy yeast um which is a new startup you know everyone might know why yeast and some of the other um, big uh, yeast supplies and uh, gig white, yeast. White labs. White labs. Yeah. Um, and uh, gig yeast was one that hadn't really come across my radar, but it uh, seems to be talked about increasingly in homebrew circles. And as we know, what uh, starts in homebrew tends to make its way across the, uh, you know, the, 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 the craft industry. So we thought it was a good chance to speak to uh, Jim Withy. And as always, we started with our question, uh, who is Dr. Jim Withy? <laughs> <laughs> well, that is a hard question. I don't know. I, uh, professionally, I've done a lot of different things in my life. I was a research scientist for the most of my career and um, ended up as a risk analyst at the U.S. government where we built mathematical models of foodborne illness like mad cow disease and listeria. Um, that was my last paying gig. And uh, I quit that job in 2011 and built my own laboratory, built Gig East. That's a, a, a big call. It, it's, it's a little bit like a home brewer just deciding that, you know, I, I make some decent beer in my garage. I'm going to drop a million dollars in, you know, plus the rest. Um, <laughs> you're setting up Yeah, a... you're right. It is scary. And I think I'm like a lot of people in that, uh, you know, I like, I'm a, you know, I'm a risk taker by nature. Uh, if I knew how difficult it was really going to be, I'm not sure if I would have actually done it. But uh, it, it's done now and it's worked out well. Well, I guess we said in our intro to you that no doubt uh, you didn't hear um, that over the last we've 107, 108 episodes of Australian of Radio Brews News, we've talked to brewers, we've talked to uh, maltsters, we've talked to hop growers. We've never actually done yeast, and that probably says a, a lot about how under you know, under-regarded yeast has tended to be over the last 10, 15 years as hops have dominated the craft brewing world. Um, but so how about we go back and you give us a little bit of a primer. Um, what is yeast? Uh, well, yeast is actually a fungus. It's a unicellular fungus of ascomycetes. Uh, uh, there are thousands and thousands of different species and varietals of yeast all over our planet. Um, laboratories such as ours are pretty rare. We're not a giant dried yeast manufacturer. We actually sell microbes for a broad range of brewing applications, including 
you know, wild yeast like Britannomyces, souring bacteria, um, a variety of things that help make beer. In terms of the relationship between yeast and science and humans, it's a really long one. It's probably, it's usually looked at as the oldest biotechnology because people harnessed yeast and bacteria to make fermented foods and beverages in every culture uh, uh, all over this planet thousands and thousands of years ago. And they've been slowly collecting them and modifying them over time. It's, it's Laboratories a- like ours collect artisanal strains that were selected for uh, for a variety of different traits and we bank them and uh, grow them up large scale and we provide them for brewers. But Pete, I mean, you made uh, an interesting comment there. People tend to think of, you know, domesticated animals, you know, like whether it's a horse or a, or a cow or a goat. But I've heard you describe yeast as the oldest domesticated uh, you know, organism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. Um, yeast is easy to isolate from, you know, from our environment. And uh, you can't find a culture that doesn't make fermented foods and beverages with or without ethanol in them. And they've been doing it for thousands of years, uh, probably at first accidentally, but humans being humans, they quickly started to engineer the organisms, even though they couldn't see them, right? Because unlike when you're looking at cattle, you might be selecting for a bigger and bigger bull every generation and breeding it, right? Animal husbandry. With microbes, humans couldn't see them and they didn't understand what was going on, but they certainly knew if something tasted like crap or if it tasted good or if it was preserved so it wouldn't go rotten, right? So but, just in selecting for the outcomes over and over, they very quickly changed the microbes greatly, right? Just like they changed animals and plants. And that's one of the amazing things about yeast because it's, it's something that until Louis Pasteur in the late 1800s uh, really isolated and identified and was able to um, study it a little bit more with the aid of the microscope. Fermentation seemed a miracle and it was often you know, more associated with religion than it was with science. Yeah, and I love that. I thought, you know, uh, Louis Pasteur and his peers... Uh, we're at the very forefront of starting to understand fermentation. But at the forefront of that argument, you basically had three points to that spear, right? You had the chemists, some of which were very prominent German chemists, organic chemists, who thought that fermentation was a reaction of chemicals and it was spontaneous. You had a handful of microbiologists that actually thought it was metabolism and the absence of oxygen producing the ethanol and CO2 and other outcomes. And then you still had a lot of fanatics or whatever who believed it was sort of an act of God. And um, the outcome of that argument, which was vicious and lasted years, had a huge impact on public health, right? Because this is the beginning of understanding that it's little bitty organisms that we can't see in the air and water that make people sick. This is going to allow us to move from the Stone Age of thinking of diseases as being caused by witches and devils into the modern era of treating microbiology as a science, right? So, Jim, on that, um, the whole Louis Pasteur thing, um, and, and at that point, we, I guess, as, as civilization, came to understand and, and I guess, truly harness um, the power of yeast. One thing that's always bothered me or, or, or um, that I've wondered about, before that, were there lots of, um, I guess, was there lots of hit and miss? Or do we just assume that um, it, it kind of went along okay and and then we just kind of, I guess, gave names, you know, scientific names to everything? But, but was there a lot of, I, I guess, you know, um, uh, bad experiences with the East in the, in the past, particularly in the brewing sphere? I mean, are you kind of getting at, are we making better beer because of the si- understanding the science behind it? Yeah, was that kind of like, I guess, the was, was that the tipping point? We go, okay, now everything kind of, I, I guess, goes okay, whereas before it, it was a bit of fingers crossed and uh, and hope for the best. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, it's hard. This is a really hard question to answer, but, of course, over drinks it comes up a lot. I think you're probably living in an age with the best beer ever made in the history of humanity. You know, that can be argued both ways. But I'll tell you one thing. Without understanding the science of beer, you definitely could not have the huge monolithic lager producers like Anheuser-Busch, right? Um, The ability to make your product consistently and have it turn out the same and to easily and early on detect things that are going to cause off flavors um, is huge. And, you know, at the time when Pasteur 
and his colleagues were making these discoveries. I mean, breweries were just beginning to really grow large and mass produce. And I guarantee they were having problems with consistency. But if it was expected, people dealt with it, right? No, that, that answers it beautifully. So, Jim, you, you made the point that without understanding yeast, we wouldn't have the, the, the big brewers. Um, we've seen a swing in the last you know, 20, 30 years um, towards craft brewing where people talk about the art of brewing. In your view, uh-huh. is, is, is brewing art or is it science? <laughs> brewing is hard. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have probably not been around breweries enough to know making beer is really hard to make it at any kind of scale. And making beer consistently is is even harder. But, but back to the real question here, uh, that's what I love about brewing. I think more than making wine, even more than cooking, it takes so much technical know-how and hard work combined with a little bit of, you know, fancifulness um, that, that you're hard-pressed to find something that combines art and hard work and science more than beer. So... I, I think that the luxury of a, especially American craft brewers is, you know, we have a lot of leeway in terms of what you can make and what people will like. We're we're sort of living in a culture right now where it's not like, oh, is this a perfect pilsner? Does it have perfect clarity? Does it have just these notes and no off flavor? People are drinking all kinds of things. And if they like the flavor, they don't really care if it relates to a specific style or a tradition or, you know. So take a step back. You said it's a unicellular, a unicellular organism. Um, now, I'm a humanity student, not a science student. Um, so I, I think of that and think something that's very, very simple. It's a, it's a very, very simple organism. And yet one thing, the yeast, comes in almost infinite number of forms. And depending on which one you use, it can have a vastly different influence on, on the final uh, product of the beer, on the flavours and on the, on the, on the mouthfeel and on, on just about every element of, of, of the beer. How is that? How do different yeast strains uh, differ? Well, they can differ quite a bit. And if you're talking about strains, i.e. different variants of the same species, now we're talking about Chihuahuas versus Great Danes. So if you take things like ale strains, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, um, they can vary a lot because they were selected for really different traits. And I guess I would just start this without trying to bore you to absolute tears in that it's important to remember that yeast is a fungus. It's not a bacteria. And fungi make the most amazing array of chemicals. Um, You're familiar with mushrooms making all kinds of toxins and hallucinogens and different crazy flavors that come out of wild mushrooms. Uh, Fungi make a lot of complex compounds. So yeast follow in that tradition. And in terms of their ability to make all these different kinds of flavors, that's something that's been selected for over time by people you know, keeping strains that produce flavors that they liked and getting rid of ones that they didn't like. So you're basically starting with the ability to make a huge range of different compounds and then selecting for enhancing and removing different ones over time. So is it a form of, form of uh, human-driven uh, um, natural selection? That's exactly what it is. Yeah. We, we tend to refer to it, scientists refer to natural selection and then selective breeding. Um, and, and that's really what happens with yeast. It's been selective breeding. It's uh, basically humans controlling the selection of traits by picking the traits that they like, right? And um, it's more obvious in crops like corn or tomatoes maybe, but um, it happened early on and often with yeast too. Jim, in the same way that perhaps uh, the hop growers have uh, responded to the growth of, of craft and and therefore, you know, sort of grow on their crops based on uh, what the perceived demand is. Is yeast a similar sort of thing or do you and your cohort, I guess, work on uh, at a more scientific level saying, okay, let's get this right or let's, you know, get that right, uh, let's make this more stable and, and reliable and all that sort of thing? Or do you also work... I guess, hand in hand with the brewers to say, what sort of beers do you want to produce? That's the kind of yeast that we'll aim to, to do. So chicken and egg, which, which way does it go? We look to the brewers and uh, 
my philosophy, and I think it's a damn good one because it's mine. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> we, uh, we find that as home brewing goes in the U.S., commercial brewing goes. So if you want to find in the U.S., in my opinion, where the next big trends are going to be in terms of craft brewing, I'm not talking about big mega breweries, but in terms of craft breweries, look at what craft what home brewers are talking about online and making in their homebrew clubs. And we're not trying to actually shape that by creating new kinds of microorganisms. We're there to find the ones that are going to make the kind of beer that people want to make next. So in that way, it really is pretty different from what you see happening in hops and even in malt to a certain degree. Yep. Jim, how many yeast strains are there? Oh, my gosh. You mean used in brewing? Well, yeah, I, I guess how many are there that can be used in brewing or just how many are there and are there yeast strains that we haven't yet harnessed um, that you know, potentially would be uh, brilliant for brewing? Yeah, I think there's probably wild species out there um, for sure that, that will be used in the next beer. People are constantly capturing wild strains. We're one of them. Um, in terms of the absolute number, you know, that's really shifting because uh, we're sequencing the genomes of more and more yeasts. And uh, in some ways it's showing a, a much simpler view because we used to just say, oh, it's a different strain because it came from a different region of England or whatever, right? Um, we're finding some of those differences disappearing. Um, so I, I think it's really hard to say how many meaningful different strains of yeast are being used in brewing right now on the order of hundreds, probably. Okay, maybe uh, one of the basic elements of uh, yeast that most people know about is the ale yeast and the lager yeast. Um, mm -hmm. And, and I've, I've heard recently that the, 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 the lager yeast seems to have only been introduced to Europe um, five or 600 years ago, or it's, it's only a recent introduction to Europe. Is that um, correct? And, and what's the difference between ale and lager yeasts? Yeah, well, they're pretty different, actually. So an ale yeast really is a strain or a variant of a species called Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Uh, lager yeast is a pretty different animal. It's the result of a hybridization between a Saccharomyces cerevisiae species and a Bayonis, so a totally different species of yeast. Um, it's like a donkey or a mule or whatever, except for it's, it's not sterile. It can reproduce. Different species of yeast can actually breed to limited degrees. And, you know, we do that kind of thing in yeast labs. Uh, at some point, some time ago, probably in Germany, one of these hybridizations happened and some lucky brewers, uh, you know, brewing vessel is fermenter. And um, they were able to capture something that could ferment at low temperatures and not make a lot of esters and phenolics. Uh, I think that's probably a pretty accurate view. They've been sequenced over and over and over now, and it's almost for sure that they're a cross between these two different species. I mean, I would add on that note, what's interesting is lagers just obliterated ales, right? As soon as people in Europe started to drink them. Now we've really come back in the craft brewing age into introducing a lot of these ales with different esters and phenolics and strong flavors. But man, those lagers really just dominated. They wiped out most of the you know, traditional ale production whenever they showed up. That's, that's an interesting comment. And, you know, I, I think the evolution of food has been um, moving away from some of the wilder flavors that, that, that occur in, in, in nature. And we've become more and more refined and more and more processed and more cleaner um, flavors through a lot of our food. And lager seems to be something that's a bit of a, um, you know, uh, following of that, um, where they're, they're cleaner flavors, they're, they're crisper, they don't have all of the uh, yeast profiles or the fermentation profiles that come through. And yet suddenly we've seen a swing back to sour beers or beers that are the complete opposite of that. Do, do you have a, a, a feeling that's probably outside of the, the, the pure science of it, it's delving into the philosophy of um, beer, but do, do you have a feeling of for why that is? What? <laughs> That's a complicated question, I guess, but I, I think about that a lot. I think, uh, A, when done right, they're really good. They provide a complexity for people that are looking for something that's sort of a step. Uh, I love lagers, by the way, but, you know, I drink everything. Um, if you're looking for something more complex, like on the order of, of what wine connoisseurs will call, you know, uh, 
heavily aged wines, uh, the sours could provide that. B, I think a lot of what happened in the US was, you know, uh, whenever you take up a hobby or get into something, you're gonna constantly want to push the envelope, right? So craft brewers got into, or home brewers got into making beer and uh, they began making ales and that wasn't enough. And then they wanted to dope the crap out of their ales with way too many hops to see how far they could push that. And then they wanted to see how much alcohol they could get in them. And then pretty soon they were like, geez, we're running out of different things to do, right? You know what you should do? We should explore these sour beers. And it just kind of became the next frontier. And it's a big frontier to explore because it allows you to age. It allows you to use a whole different microorganism, classes of microorganisms. It allows you to do different things in the mash ton. It, uh, it just brings a whole nother level of complexity to the whole hobby, right? On that note, we've seen um, you know, in the hop front, we've seen a whole lot of innovation in hop breeding where you know, different characteristics have come to the fore. We're seeing that uh, in, in malt as well. What sort of innovation happens in, in, in yeast? You know, what, it, 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 it's a living thing. How much control do we have over where yeast goes and develops and, 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 and what sort of innovations are you looking at um, in, to, to do a, change the face of brewing? You know, that's an interesting question for me because in my background as a scientist, I was a molecular biologist, which means I spent most of my time genetically modifying yeast to give them different traits and study the effects, right? I actually don't think you're going to see a huge amount of that anytime soon playing a big role in brewing. I personally believe we're going to find the natural variants that are already out there that provide the next new interesting flavors. Um, which is really different than the way that people that make hops and malt will approach it. You know, they're constantly out there crossing things and trying to come up with different variations and, and, uh, that kind of thing. You can do that with yeast and you're seeing a little bit of it, but, uh, I still think the best yeast are going to be found, not made. And in, in that sense, what sort of work is being done to, uh, you know, to, to, to make yeast characters more interesting in beer or what, what, what's on the horizon for what can we expect um, you know, as the next progressions in, in yeast technology, uh, even if occurring naturally? Well, in terms of them occurring naturally, you know, um, our ability to find wild strains that produce interesting flavors that people want to have in their beer um, is only increasing. And the globe is our limit, right? Yeast are found all over the globe virtually all over the globe, except for the very coldest climates. In terms of intentional modifications, there's a lot of that going on too. Um, I don't know if you guys are aware. I mean, at the WBC this year, a young man uh, from a government lab in the U.S. had produced a yeast strain that makes uh, uh, lupulins. I forget which compounds it's making, but basically the yeast is making alpha acids, right? Wow. I, I had, I had adding hops. Yeah, it's kind of an interesting idea, and his angle on it is that it could save money, right? Because uh, as you scale up beer, hop additions, especially in the U.S., where you have to make that gigantic triple IPA, the hops become the most expensive component, right? And uh, having the yeast just produce it as it ferments gives you that background, and then you could just dry hop on top of it or something like that. It's the idea. It's a addition, you know, I've oh, seen lots of modifications to make more alcohol. Um, you can change yeast purposefully to cause them to flocculate more, all this kind of thing. By and large, I still believe that we're going to find natural variants or variants that people have selected for that do basically most of what we want them to do. The other thing we see a lot of, and this is not new, is people crossing lager strains back with ale strains to try to get colder fermenting uh, ale yeast. I mean, of course, we already have some traditional examples of those from Germany, but um, we can do more of that. And maybe down the road, even crossing, you know, esters into lager yeast or things like that um, can certainly be done. Americans, I don't know what the climate's like in Australia. Uh, the American public is still extremely leery of what they call GMOs, anything that has been intentionally genetically modified for right or for wrong. And uh, the craft beer community is especially suspicious. It tends to be a sort of, I don't know, uh, anti-technology <laughs> kind of <laughs> kind of community and, and what's your view on that is, is that warranted like not not about the gmos but just about because it, it's something we do pick up here and because there is such a feeling against 
what is termed big beer and uh, brewing had become so concentrated in breweries that were so focused on efficiencies over you know perhaps some of the other characteristics that uh, beer can be um, that anything to do with uh, science and technology and progress is frowned upon um, and, and yet we wouldn't you know any home brewer um, is using technology that is you know multiples or so far advanced from anything that went on a hundred years ago for example that technology of itself isn't bad it's definitely not and I think it can swing too far I mean I'm a scientist by training so I'm not anti-technology um, I might be anti certain applications of it but you know I'm, I'm not anti-growing and you know, I think the very idea that the only good way to do things is the same way they were done a thousand years ago is nonsense. Personally, I'm it's part of the human spirit to improve on things and learn from your predecessors and stand on their shoulders. Right. And, and I think any serious craft brewer who moves beyond the home and starts trying to make a living making beer will quickly kind of leave that, you know, Luddite attitude behind. <laughs> Prof, did you that have something? That being said, I think, oh, I think they're still very resistant to genetically modified yeast or grain or anything else, you know. And as a scientist, what are your thoughts about that? What, what, what are your thoughts about um, GMOs? Is, are, are they franken yeasts or are they just a, um, you know, humans giving a natural evolution a helping hand? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing about GMOs is genetic modification is a technology. So each case is different, right? Um, in my mind, it depends on what genes you've put in or removed and what the application is of the organism that you're using. They're not bad or good. Uh, the fact is, it's very, very difficult, in fact, probably almost impossible, to genetically engineer a yeast and modify it more than it's already been modified by the selective breeding it's been undergoing for thousands of years. I mean, these yeasts are already crazy. They've got multiple copies of all kinds of chromosomes and repeats in them. And, uh, they are so far from any kind of wild yeast that uh, <laughs> it's, you know, <laughs> that time has kind of come and gone. But, but still, the public, especially in America here, is, is really on the fence about whether or not they want yeast or anything that's been actually purposefully had a gene altered in it by a scientist as opposed to just selecting for different traits. Now, Jim, before we let you go, on a personal level, uh, when you drink a beer that's been made with your yeast, do you does that give you, kind of, I guess, a bit of a, a special thrill, knowing that that's your work, uh, your science, I guess, combined with the brewer's art, has, has created something that's uh, greater than the sum of its parts? I love that part of it. That's the best thing about owning this business. You know that? We're not just selling paper clips to offices. We're a part of everybody's business. So we're selling to, I think, 400 breweries or something all over the world now. And of course, thousands of home brewers. I love the fact that we are a part of their beer, right? And, and when I visit these breweries or go to conferences or people send me beer and we taste it, I just feel an immense amount of pride, even just having played that small role, you know, provided the yeast. I, I love it. Actually on that, um... You have you started your business, uh, Giggy Yeast, and uh, you, know, you decided to go and create your own uh, yeast cultures and uh, supply the, the the brewing world. Given that yeast is something that exists naturally, how, I mean, how much can you differentiate your product from any of the other yeast banks or yeast suppliers? You know, what what innovation can take place in a business sense um, to to make uh, Giggy Yeast different from anyone else? Well, I really think it goes down to to three things. The first is, yes, we've isolated a lot of traditional strains from similar breweries, but every time you go in and isolate a yeast as a laboratory, you work on what we call the basis of a single colony, which is basically a single cell. They come out different. And I think we worked harder than anybody else, even with the traditional strains, to make sure we got really robust variants that perform consistently. I mean, I know we did because we spent a long time on it. The second thing is the process you use to grow them up and the pitch rate you provide has a big impact on the beer, even if you have the identical yeast strain, right? And uh, growing yeast is not just growing yeast. I mean, you can grow yeast just throwing it into sugar water, right? But growing it so that it comes out 
really healthy and robust and guaranteeing that's completely uncontaminated is, is a whole nother kettle of fish. And then the third thing that we do is I love being in this business. So we just service the hell out of our customers. You know, uh, we treat every brewer like family. There's lots of free consulting. There's talking, there's understanding. And um, that's just never going away. That's just sort of our personality here. Now you provide yeast in, in liquid form, not the dried form. That's correct. Yeah, we don't dry any yeast at this point. And one of the, the comments I've seen on a lot of it, when I was uh, preparing to have a chat to you, I, I read a lot of the forums, and one of the comments that people say is that the yeast uh, tend to be a little bit more expensive, but you, you provide it at pitch rate as opposed to just a sample that they then have to, um, uh, you know, um, I'm thinking of, trying to think of the term, um, mental blank. Make a starter with. Make a start. Yeah. sorry, yes, make, make a starter with. Um, what, what was the thinking there? Well, for the homebrew in particular, we didn't want to just enter the homebrew market with the same uh, product, basically, as our competitors. So we wanted to enter with a premium product that had twice the pitch rate, and that's what we did. Um, so in addition to our uh, uh, strain selection and our growth process and customer service here, our homebrew pitches are twice the size of most of the other uh, brands that you're going to see out there. And um, I think it's important. The liquid yeast pitches traditionally that homebrewers were getting were really about half or even a little bit less of what you need to make a proper beer. And is that a hard thing to communicate to, to your customers that we are more expensive because we are doing it differently to, to, to other businesses? Well, I've found most of the retailers... Well, first thing that's kind of interesting about what we do is even though the homebrewers use our yeast, our customers are the stores that sell it. So... <laughs> Most of the retailers actually think it's an outstanding idea. Um, we've had very little pushback on it. Uh, I think it's important that they know they're getting twice the yeast for a couple more dollars. You know what I mean? Um, it has to be communicated well. And I don't think we've really done a great job advertising uh, that particular facet of it. We're pretty new to the homebrew game. And uh, we're just now, we've expanded into a new laboratory as of a few months ago. We're just now really starting to step up our homebrew production in the coming months here. So um, you can expect a lot more communication about it and uh, hopefully a lot more consumer education. Excellent. Well, just before we let you go, we always ask, uh, we, we always finish uh, with, with a thing that we call the Pacey Poser, which is uh, one of our regular listeners uh, suggested that we ask this as our last question. And that's, uh, if you, you've been running your lab since 2011, I believe. Um, mm -hmm. If Looking back over that period, if you were to do one thing differently with your business or if you made one mistake that you wish you could uh, go back and change, what would that be? <laughs> uh, first thing I'm going to say is running a business is really hard. A lot of bad things happen and a lot of mistakes are made. We've been very fortunate, all that being said. If I was to single out one thing... I don't know. I suppose that uh, we started awfully small and it was still you know, expensive to build that incubator lab in the early years and then very expensive to move all the equipment and redesign all, all our bioreactors and the laboratory itself. If I could have done one thing differently, I may have ponied up more capital and, and started with a slightly bigger facility. A lot of brewers find this too. It's good advice to people starting a craft brewery. You want to be risk averse and start very small, but it's so expensive and time consuming to move to a larger space and increase the size of your equipment, which you're going to have to do to become profitable. Uh, in some ways, you're better off just kind of ripping the Band-Aid off and, or opening up the wound or whatever you want to call it and, uh, and starting a little larger. Well, that's great advice, and it's certainly one of the reasons why we uh, finish with that question and call it the poser, because it's uh, it, it, everyone finds that a diff difficult question to to answer. Dr. Jim Withy, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Brews News. It's been it's been great to chat, and uh, I'll hope hopefully we'll see you down here uh, before too much longer, so we can uh, have a chat in person and uh, even enjoy a beer made with one of your yeasts. That would be awesome. Thank you very much, guys. Terrific, Jim. Thanks very much for your time. Thanks, Jim. Brews News is made possible by Brewpack, Australia's number one craft contract brewer. 
With over 100 craft beers and ciders on the roster and counting, Brewpack specialises in offering growing craft breweries a home for their packaged and kegged beer, no matter how crafty. Serious about handmade beers, and with an open-door policy, Brewpack's brewers love having passionate, hands-on partners in the brewery. Thinking about craft contract brewing? Think Brewpack. And uh, yes, we thank Brewpack for not only making a whole lot of great craft beers possible, but also for making this podcast possible. There you go, Prof. Uh, I always find yeast fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and it's been one of those things I think that, in terms of the, you know, the cultivation of yeast and the, um, the way it's been, you know, presented uh, to you know home brewers and then into into the commercial sphere um, has always been something of a mystery to me. So big ups to Dermot for um, for suggesting uh, Dr. Jim. Um, he was he was good fun. Mm. I enjoyed that chat. Now, lucky uh, Q cards and letters. Another cracker. Um, anyway, Prof, uh, have you had anyone in your ear over the last week? Uh, no, no, none at all. No, not even, gee, I wish, oh, I'll sit, okay, maybe they've just started writing to me to uh, correct me uh, uh, personally. Uh, Simon Godden um, from Gerringong, a lovely part of uh, the New South Wales coast. Um, hi, Matt, I enjoyed the latest podcast with Dave Phillips. Uh, brackets, despite my initial frustration during the intro where you managed to talk yourself into a circle Re the Four Pines Hoppy Doppelbock, uh, close brackets. Yes, uh, Simon, I absolutely did that. It was something that, Prof, Prof you uh, will remember that you gave big raps to the Four Pines Hoppy Doppelbock um, that I'd similarly tried um, and had some half-formed thoughts about it when you raised that. I hadn't sort of fully thought through, you know, re- reflected on it until you mentioned it. And I went from saying, yeah, is it a good name for it? And ended up saying, actually, yeah, it is a really good name for it, for for a style point of view. Yeah. So I was hoping that that no one might have picked up on that, but our listeners being somebody did <laughs> as a student. The, the, the old hospitality rule for everyone who actually bothers to you know, um, well, or or compliment. Um, well, for complaints are generally one for one. Uh, if somebody complain, then somebody else will complain. Um, but as far as compliments go, if one person thinks that, if one person says it, another ten think it. So uh, yeah, I, and I knew exactly that I'd done that, and uh, but that's Prof and I don't sit here with a scripted show, um, and we well I know uh, I personally uh, think out loud. Yeah, and sometimes sometimes you know that that's why it's good to have two voices. You know, you sort of you bounce off each other and come to you know different conclusions that you may have started out with. Yeah, from from memory though, this one was just one unbroken stream of me talking, and I managed to go completely round in well, circle. Well, <laughs> yeah, but. It, it, it got people talking, so. You know. Well, at least I'm willing to admit that I'm wrong. Or you know, that, 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 as as I often say, I'm, I'm thinking out loud. It's it's not me saying this is how it is. It's me saying this is how it is, isn't it? In in my head. Well, yeah. you know, this is how it is, isn't it? And then you know, you often disagree, and listeners come in and disagree. Um, and we, we've got a, a, a we'll be moving on to another uh, letter that says exactly the same thing. Um, he then goes on to say, more importantly, I've undertaken one of Dave's tours. Dave's brewery tours was the uh, interview that we uh, did. Um, with a bunch of mates, and we had a great time. I highly recommend them. Um, he was particularly interested in the brief discussion of beer-related TV shows and the problems associated with getting such productions off the ground. I've often wondered the why of that myself. Dave briefly mentioned YouTube as a possible vehicle for such shows, which prompted me to bring to your attention a particular favourite YouTube channel of mine, The Beer Diaries. Um, not to be confused with our good friend Phil... Um, the Beer Diary. The, the Beer Cook. Diary, Phil Cook. Um, uh, the majority of these productions are based on the host's visit to breweries uh, in Austin and a variety of places in Colorado. They have super high production values and I'd heartily recommend them um, as a good model for the sort of shows you and Prof and Dave were talking about. Keep up the good work. Love the podcast. Thank you for writing in, Simon. Uh, encourage you to jump on to iTunes if you haven't already, but we'll uh, flog that horse a little bit later. Uh, mate, as a result of that email, I um, jumped on the Beer Diaries uh, podcast and it's everything that uh, Simon said they were. Um, it's let's see, it's YouTube. I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, 
they are beautifully presented um, in a sense. Uh, two bearded fellows, one uh, rather rotund and uh, one tall and skinny, um, visiting breweries. And uh, Stereotype anyone? For reasons that will become clear in the next email, I won't. I wasn't going to editorialise. I was just describing. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, they get some great shows, beautifully uh, presented. But then when you start clicking, you know, when, when you start looking through um, the beer diaries, Oscar Blues, twenty three thousand four hundred thirty eight views. It was posted a year ago. Um, New Belgium, twenty two thousand five hundred sixty views. It was posted a year ago. Um, uh, the Beer Diaries World Tour, Belize or Belize, um, 1,021 views posted five months ago. Um, you know, when, when you look at the production value and there, there's two guys and there's, you know, audio guys involved, there's editing to get, you know, 23,000 views in 12 months. Um, if you were going to, if you're doing it as a hobby, which these guys seem to be doing and, you know, maybe hoping to be discovered, you know, all power to you. They're getting, you know, uh, behind the scenes access to breweries. They're getting to know people um, and maybe they're doing it for that reason. If they're doing it commercially, they're not going to be, uh, you know, even covering the cost of production um, with both right. sorts so, of so, so for people out there, including me, who have no concept whatsoever of the scale of numbers, that 22,000 in this particular instance, are you, is that meagre? Oh, mate, that, well, look, I, I don't know for Facebook, um, you know, that we, and even our podcast, I think, you know, we sort of average close to a thousand, um, you know, an audience of a, a thousand um, an, an episode. So, you know, that, that's basically on the par with our podcast. And I wouldn't sort of see this as a commercial model um, that, that you can really make money out of it, certainly in terms of, you know, cost, you know, cost per click uh, or cost per view, which is the, you know, you get money per thousand viewers, you're not going to be getting a good return on that. Um, and it, it, even free-to-air television that we still see, you want audience figures of the hundreds of thousands um, a, a night and shows can get cancelled um, with that sort of uh, figure. You know, they, they if, if advertisers want to reach a big audience, which is what broadcasting is, they want to see a much bigger uh, um, audience than that to, to put money behind it. So, uh, you know, unless you've got a brewery sponsoring the, the, the show or as somebody in the industry or, you know, just getting paid by clicks, um, you're not going to, you know, that's just not a commercial thing. Um, as nice as those shows are and as informative and as engaging, it's obviously not resonating for whatever reason. Um, and that happens quite a bit. Yeah, all right, man. Um, okay. Yeah, I mean, remember uh, even Sam Caligione's show um, that, you know, they really tried to target the widest market. It was about craft beer. You had a rock star to craft brewers. Sam Caligione's also very, you know, good-looking and personable for people who aren't necessarily in the beer industry. Um, and then they did it that, you know, it was almost that reality show. This is the, you know, uh, challenge that we've got this week or this is what we're doing this week. Um, and it just... Never, I don't think they even played out the full season. No, I think there were 13 episodes commissioned and they might have done 10 or 11, um, but there, there was talk, apocryphal or otherwise, that uh, perhaps one of the bigger brewing companies had um, suggested that they might look elsewhere for their advertising budget um, should that show continue. Bit, is that scuttlebutt or is, is that a little bit like Greg Cook from Stone saying, oh, you know, we've had to lay off 25% of our workforce because big beer is, you know, um, undercutting our prices. Possibly. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things, you, you can raise the spectre of big beer and all of this nasty stuff. I, I, don't, I don't know, but, you know, I, I, I get the impression that if it was uh, doing well, um, they could easily have tweaked. You know, if, if a beer-related TV show was doing well and you even had that sort of pressure... Um, there would be ways that you could come out with something that would appease the big yeah. brewer sponsor mm. and still create traffic in something that is supposedly a very popular industry. So anyway, that, that was a long uh, diatribe on, um, yeah. It, 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 Beer it diaries. Something that I've thought about a lot, trying to work out why it hasn't happened. And uh, 
you said you had another email I do. There? Yes, nice to know. Thanks for moving me on. Um, Will Zebel, um, who writes at the Crafty Pint. Um, I commented about two weeks ago in the John Selton episode, um, and having just come back from Oktoberfest, I talked about the article I wrote in The Age and one on the Crafty Pint. I don't think I name-checked Will. I think or you might have name-checked Will. Um, and he says, thanks for the praise in regards to the historical aspects. It was an, yeah, it was an awesome article, um, and we sort of talked that up. Um, he did say, uh, having I, I did make a point, though, that, uh, and I didn't have the article in front of me when I did it, so I was doing the, it's the vibe of the thing. Um, I made the point that uh, Will had commented that the beers had been dumbed down or homogenized. I, I think I said dumbed down. Um, and he said, having gone back over the article, I don't really think I did insinuate that Oktoberfest beers had been dumbed down, or at the very least, I didn't mean to. I did say that the beer drunk at the festival had changed a few times during the festival's history and put the more recent change down to the success of pale lagers. While I did say that change was also driven by the increasingly homogenized taste of those attending the festival, I do think that's an apt description because pale lagers became so popular in Germany as well as the rest of the world, a lot of historical styles disappeared. Given that people were drinking fewer styles of beer, I don't think it's unreasonable to say that beer, that tasting beer did become more homogenized. That's not a judgment on what the people should be drinking or brewing, but just an observation on how beer drinkers' tastes change. Um, and good, good point. And I wasn't sort of uh, calling that article out for criticism. Um, and I may have been conflating a few other articles and things that I'd seen talking about the, the, the beer at Oktoberfest has been dumbed down and packaged it up in that one comment from Wills. Um, but even coming from Wills' uh, article, um, beer has changed at Oktoberfest over time, including when the you know, dark, the, the, the um, Oktoberfest or Nertzen style became very, very pos uh, popular, which uh, Joseph Seidelmeyer from Memory Prof yep. created that. Good, good friend of the program. <laughs> oh, that Joseph Seidelmeyer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, suddenly they were what everyone was selling. Um, and, you know, you, you do see these comments that you no longer see these darker, richer beers served in Oktoberfest and it's been dumbed down. And I'm not saying that Will said this, but you, you do see that quite a bit. I'm sure, though, in Munich, on your way home from the Oktoberfest grounds, between there and uh, and the hotel, I'm pretty sure you could probably find some interesting beers at right. various outlets along the way. <laughs> don't, don't let that put you off going to Oktoberfest, folks. No, no, and, and everyone does a, 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 a Dunkel or a Mertzen or something yeah. along those lines. Doppel, they, they, Doppelbock? Yeah. Um, but I guess, yeah, so I, I wasn't criticising Will's article, um, and I, that may have been my editorial no, and, and knowing knowing Will uh, as well as I do from um, serving him lots of beers uh, at the Crafty Pint Blind Tastings, um, it, it would just be for a clarification point of view rather than to – he's not the kind of guy who'd get his back up. Oh, no, no, no. It was very nice and, and, and all of that. And uh, But I just wanted to say, look, I wasn't having a go because it was an awesome article, um, really, uh, you know, sort of a great touchstone for anyone who wants to find out more about Oktoberfest. Um, and I was only highlighting it because I think we sometimes forget that changing fashion doesn't always mean, um, and, and you know, uh, Mertzen styles or the, 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 the Martin styles were once homogenized at Oktoberfest and everyone served them. And then taste change, everyone's serving golden nuggets. And who knows if, you know, we, we, we might see a, a change back and other styles become homogenized. That's not to say that the beers that they're serving now aren't complex and uh, yeah, lovely. So yeah, and there was a very succinct way of saying, um, sorry if I was out of line with that crack about dumbing down Oktoberfest beers. Will? Yeah, well, no, but I, I, yeah, I don't. Anyway, I, I don't think that's what I said, um, but I can understand why he thought that I did. Yeah. So that's that's almost a Trump-esque non-apology apology. If I upset anybody, not saying I did. Um. But that's all that we've got in cards and letters. I don't recall any uh, noteworthy uh, or controversial comments in the website. Um, so we might just go. Did, did you? And so you had nothing, Prof. You had nothing you wanted to raise out of any of that. No, no, no. All cleared up. Uh, well, this is as we say. If you've got anything to say, um, please jump on uh, iTunes and uh, leave a review, good, bad, or indifferent. Leave a comment. Let us know how we're doing. Um, Send us an email, 
You can even call and leave a message for us. Uh, actually, I did offer to Will um, the chance to chat because Will is a bloke who is writing some awesome uh, historical articles and uh, love to have a chat to Will at some stage about you know his favourite beer history um, and even the uh, changing beers of Oktoberfest. Um, uh, so yeah, you can contact us through any of those. Um, you can also, if you want to wear us out, um, you can jump on the website and scroll down and you'll see a couple of uh, you know, the merch that we've got. Hops, Brett, Novelty and Hype um, is one. Or if you're just a hops person, hops, hops, hops and hype. Um, and you can buy a t-shirt and uh, you know, make a little bit of, help us make a little bit of money, a couple of bucks on top of that. Uh, have, we, have we sold out of consistency, quality, balance and style? No, no, we've got consistency, quality, balance and style as well. Oh, um, good. Just, just for those who, you know, a bit more, I guess, uh, you know, erudite, want to, you know, make a more subtle point. Exactly. So yeah. uh, uh, what, what have you got on this week, Prof, before we sail on out of here? Uh, Melbourne Cup weekend down here, Matt. So the race that stops a nation and um, gives everybody a long weekend. There you go. Of course. Uh, actually, because I work from home, I never, you know, I don't have an office Melbourne Cup party to, uh, to to focus on. But it's not quite as big up here. We don't have the public holiday in Brisbane. It's an unofficial public holiday. Maybe, perhaps the, the you know, I'll make a suggestion to the people who run the Melbourne Cup to perhaps get a, you know, um, chicken dance type uh, theme song, just so, to make it more appeasable, uh, more, um, you know, uh, yeah, for Brisbane people. Mate, yeah. I don't, you, yeah, you you opened the door. Well, yeah, you're going to land here hello to, one day. Hello to all. Hello to all our friends in Brisbane. And you're going to be chased out with pitchforks uh, <laughs> next time you you land here. Oh, um, uh, geez, you're not helping it. So you, <laughs> you haven't progressed from pitchforks, Matt. <laughs> They're down here. It'll be the seven shot Adler. <laughs> Up in Brisbane. Oh no, no, we still old school, mate. Pitchforks. Well, it's it's not pitchforks chasing people out of town. It's people with or, pitchforks chasing people out of town. <laughs> <laughs> or as we call them, non-electric electric cattle prods. <laughs> anyway, mate, we we just we're just waffling. Let's get out and get on out of here. Great chatting to you, Prof. Have fun, listeners. Have a good week. Take us out, love you. <laughs>